it's become kind of trendy to look to something like post-libertarian or post-anarchism, and then we see where that goes in the future. Maybe six months from now, we come up with something better. I set aside the idea of truth a long time ago, and instead, I've endeavored to find what is. Inquiry before dogma. Rothbardy, right-wing, anarcho-capitalism has no praxis. We've seen the evidence of what we try to do and we're just focusing on reason. When I think about accelerationism, it is how do we contain this, control the collapse, right? Kind of move it into a box that we have control over. And so there has to be some way for folks who are not leftists, who are not progressives, who are not communists, to come up with their own theory of how to use this to the human advantage. I always thought that the Enlightenment thinkers misunderstood the, the degree to which faith plays a role in our conception of the world. We're freaking apes, man. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this it's the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. Interview with Adam Patrick from You're Talking Over Me. Okay, this is going to be your introduction to post-libertarianism. I've actually done a lot of content recording on the day that I'm putting this out. Um, but I, I just said, I think I, I think post-libertarianism is probably going to run into this, a lot of the same issues that postmodernism did. Just, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But this was a really interesting conversation with Adam. Um, I think there's something exciting happening. I'd, I'd like to think so, at least. And, and, and it's going to be my endeavor to be a part of it. And I'm going to be part of it by having conversations like this. See, a good conversation, to me at least, it's like jazz. So a good conversationalist needs to be like a good jazz musician. You need to know the basics, but you also need to know how to improvise. You gotta think on your feet. You can't be too rigid in your form of playing. And I guess more importantly, you can't be afraid to take risks. And we talk about some risks in this episode. It's, you know, it's, it's risky to change your mind risky to admit you're wrong. That's why I want to try and help people by demonstrating how to use skepticism in a practical way in your everyday life. So thanks to Adam for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun. These conversations are always a good time and I hope that you enjoy them as much as I do producing them. If you're new to my work, please do me a favor and visit with visit binawake.com slash subscribe, sign up with your email, and level up your reality. Without further ado, my conversation with Adam Patrick from yourtalkingovermedot.com. Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, 
Does it do that Liberty. now? I think all the time. Peace. Anyway. Yeah. An escape from the woke. <laughs> Adam, um, I like to say a little bit out of laziness, but mostly because I'm philosophically interested in the question. I always want to start an interview like this by asking the guest, what, um, what schools of thought do you identify with? And so, so it, it, it's been, it's become kind of trendy to look to something like post-libertarian or post-anarchism. Um, I actually just Googled post-libertarian before we were talking just to see what kind of other people were saying about it. And it, it's got some interesting far right-wing NRX uh, connotations to it. And so maybe I'm a little bit hesitant to call myself that. Definitely somebody who considered myself within the libertarian spectrum of ideas growing up and philosophically anarchist. I, I would say I don't know how someone can be, quote unquote, an anarchist, but, but I would say philosophically, I see that as an end game. Um, I, I don't really have a term. I, I hope someday to find one or maybe help create one. But then in, every time you do, or every time somebody does, it, it always tends to be co-opted by somebody who doesn't think like you. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe terms aren't the best. But then again, do, do you want people to not know anything about you? Or do you want them to listen to 50 hours of podcast episodes before they try to figure it out? It's, it, I feel like it's all kind of, um, it's all kind of a marketing game. You know, what are you going to call yourself in public right now to get people to listen to your content to sort of get them on board with what you're saying? So maybe we say post-libertarian for now, and then we see where that goes in the future. Maybe six months from now, we come up with something better. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I think the term the I, I have never been well, frankly, probably not since I've learned what about the term libertarian has an idea been more tantalizing, not necessarily exciting, but tantalizing as as being as the term post libertarian. Hmm. Um, but but let's but let's hold on for that, because what I like to say uh, when I'm talking about the schools of thought that I identify with. And this is a I'm happy we're talking for many reasons, but also because I just for like really the first time I've tried to formalize some of the the way in which I've been analyzing the world, ideas, philosophy, humanity and so on in a couple of pieces. But I call myself a philosophical skeptic mm -hmm. and my politics as in such as they are, I would use the term libertarian. Now, of course, some people would take exception with that, but we can get into what I mean. But philosophically speaking, skepticism has always been my home and it's always been where I've felt the most comfortable. In particular, it's, um, it's, it's analogous to more of an academic skepticism, which is to, because, because as a consequence of the fact that I'm bothering to have ideas and try to put thought out into the world. So obviously hmm. there is use to this, but you know, if you go back to, if you go way back in history to like the Hellenistic age, which was a book I read when I was in school, kind of detailing that it was, to be very simple about it, um, there were like the Stoics, there were the Epicureans, and then there were kind of the skeptics who would question both of them. Mm -hmm. And so it's the formalization, the, the idea of skepticism as a formal school of thought is about questioning, right? It's inquiry before dogma. Formally speaking in skepticism, they'll call it assent, but it'll be, call, it'll be called withholding assent. But inquiry before dogmas makes a lot more sense from a marketing perspective if we're trying to get people to understand an idea. And so that's what I do. I like to say I've, I've, I set aside the idea of truth a long time ago, and instead I've endeavored to find what is. Mm. 
And that's kind of where I've, where, how I've ended up where I am here, you know, doing the show, writing the way that I write. Um, and I, in an unreleased piece, I talk about how the beginning point is always skepticism, right? If you read Rene Descartes' meditations where he's trying to prove the existence of God, he begins from a completely skeptical position. He doesn't end up a skeptic, right? He's the father of rationalism, cogito ergo sum. But he starts from a place of skepticism. And so I think as a broader cultural impact, skepticism is kind of what moves society forward, if we want to use that term. Um, because again, it's the question, it's, it's the, it's the process of questioning something that's taken for granted. But then, you know, I found a home in libertarianism, this broader school of thought, the Austrians, um, uh, you know, the, uh, let's think Hayek's, the Mises the Rothbards, Tom Woods, uh, and then, you know, more recently with some of the, uh, you know, the LPMC stuff, but that's kind of a different, that's not really about ideas. That's about, um, politics. So it's a little bit different. Right. So you're so right before right before we got on, we were talking about some stuff. And where when did you first hear the idea of post libertarianism? Because, frankly, this is the first time I've talked to somebody that hasn't see James Gentleman did something. He said libertarian ish. Yeah. Right. So we kind of stuck on that. But beyond that, I've either, it's it's been um, it's you know basically been variations whether somebody chooses anarcho capitalist or somebody chooses pale, um, uh, not paleo uh, austro libertarian um, so that's kind of been more what I've experienced for a guest so this is going to be the first time where maybe there's some discordance although I've been listening to you and I don't think so yeah I don't either <laughs> um, it's funny I think the first time I heard the term post libertarian was when Bird from Timeline Earth was on Free Man Beyond the Wall. And he said, he said the term post-libertarian and they talked about um, a post-anarchist thinker, Saul Newman, and they were going over one of his books. Um, I had never heard of him. I never heard of the term, although when I hear post anything, I mean, it, it brings to mind post-structuralism, post-modernism, post-colonialism, mm -hmm. the post, you know, uh, prefix sort of leads you down a particular path of, of where you think that ideology is going. Um I don't know if post-libertarian is necessarily literally post-libertarianism. You know, I, I don't know if that's what the term means. I don't know if it has a specific meaning. I mean, according to a couple of the Google results that I got, it does have a very specific meaning and they're all contradictory to each other, depending on which webpage you're reading. So, yes. you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I would say the way I'm looking at it is there's a group of us, uh, including myself, who find inherent issues uh, uncomfortable with the idea of libertarianism defined as Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism. And I, I don't know how to define it any other way. So that's the definition I'm going to just use moving forward. And you can kind of direct me if you think it should be labeled differently. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Rothbardian right-wing anarcho-capitalism to me it is a socioeconomic preference that has no praxis other than agorism and possibly right-wing accelerationism. There is no way to get from A to Z. There is no um, real conversation about what the middle 24 letters look like in, in, the, in the praxis of getting from one mm. point to another. It, it is, this is what should be. And we're going to describe how we should act to get to the place we should be because it should be better or it will be better. And you, you talked a little bit about the is there in the beginning and 
I suppose that's kind of been my, my questioning to people when I talk to them is, you know, do you have a, a specific praxis for getting to where you want to go? Because it seems to me the reason that libertarianism doesn't, isn't, um, people don't find it receptive as an ideology is because they don't want it, right? It, it, libertarianism is being sold to libertarians. It, it isn't a, an ideology that's approachable or delicious to the general human being who, you know, H.L. Mencken said they, they prefer you know, safety or security over liberty. Uh, that's clearly true. I mean, we've, we've lived through that for the past year and a half. Um, I think when you see that, it's right in your face and it's no longer theoretical. It starts to make you question, well, you know, if these ideas were so good and they're so perfect and profound and this is the utopia everybody would want to live in, well, my God, how did we go through the last 18 months? How did that happen? Right. So when I look back at my kind of intellectual laziness for the decade and a half prior to COVID, it, it, I think it was because it wasn't smacking me right in the face. You know, we talk about the wars overseas. I was in the military after 9-11, but I wasn't really on the front line shooting people. I was doing training. It, it got me to my libertarian stance, but it wasn't really affecting my life. Like I wasn't, my business wasn't taken away, right? Mm -hmm. My, my, uh, I wasn't locked in my home. I wasn't confronted by my neighbors as some kind of a vampire or zombie or lunatic because I didn't think the air was poison. Yeah, well, and, and while you had all the maybe the incorrect information, you chose to be in the military because we don't have we don't have uh you know you ha we have selective service, but it's not um, exercised. Right. I mean, oh, I definitely chose to go into the military, and it wasn't anything. I joined right after nine eleven, and it had to do with a girl. It had nothing to do with being a patriot. It was just a totally childish decision to try to make a relationship work. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think the COVID thing over the last year and a half really got a lot of us to think about why these ideas are not, not being received well by the everyday human being and what we or I need to do to fix that. And that mm -hmm. kind of led me down this path of asking these questions. So I don't, um, you know, I talk about dogmatism and one problem with dogma is that it never, by definition, it can't change. Not even that it won't change, but that it can't change because it does change in certain respects unless you're talking about the Catholic church. And then even then in practice, you know, what do most people do, including members of the clergy, but you touched upon nine, you, you mentioned nine 11 and you mentioned 2020 in 2016, when Donald Trump was elected as president of the United States, I, um, it was the first time I tried doing a project like this and maybe I'll dig the episodes up someday, but when I, when I was sitting down to talk with my friend, when we were doing the show, um, it was, okay, how do we put Donald Trump into a context? How do I put Donald Trump into a context? And I said, I started with the fact that he's an anomaly, mm -hmm. right? He was an anomaly to the political system, which was completely different than starting with the end, which was he's Hitler, right? So it's a, it's a question of process, which I think is what good philosophy does. But the other thing that I said was, if the events of 2016 haven't caused you to rethink what you know mm -hmm. about humanity, about politics, about the United States of America, then you're not paying close enough attention. And for the record, there's nothing wrong with not paying close enough attention. But part of what this emergent order of us in this podcasting space is, are people paying attention, right? So we can kind of remove that as part of the conversation of, you know, we're here trying to have that conversation. But this is this is the point I wanted to connect. 
9-11, you know, we can, and then the Kennedy assassination, right? The question is, where were you when it happened, right? Like, where were you when Kennedy was assassinated? Where were you when the Twin Towers were hit, when they fell? Where were you when Donald Trump was elected? And where were you when you heard the, when you heard the governor of your state was locking things down and only essential businesses mm -hmm. were allowed to continue? These are defining moments of people's lives. And, and, and so they react to them accordingly, maybe not rationally, but they react to them accordingly. What I find interesting is how we take the same ideas and we try to apply them in, in, in light of these, um, in light of these world changing events. Right. And, you know, you could say that Donald Trump wasn't doesn't really you would say it was Donald Trump for the, you know, the, the moving into the 21st century until lockdowns happened. Right. If we were going to talk about something that was going to upend the way people perceived reality. And I've been um, watching, you know, like I, I recently rewatched the TV show Scrubs and it, it's kind of useful to go back and look at some of these old sitcoms because they were on broadcast television. But the the field of conversation was mm. so much broader. Like there was a specific, I, I, I just did an interview recently with Nick Ashley and I talked about this there, but there was an episode where they were talking about the Iraq war. And, you know, one of the characters basically sounded like Scott Horton and this was allowed on broadcast television. And mm. we just had the most recent, we just had the most recent um, evidence of this as well, of how, of where the Overton window is with Jon Stewart on Stephen Colbert. Because mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, literally, you know, we're talking about the guy who pioneered a completely new field of entertainment television, right, with Jon Stewart doing the satirical cable news show. And Stephen Colbert was his like was like the heir apparent in many regards, or at least in my mind growing up, because Jon Stewart was first. Stephen Colbert was second. They each did the same show. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Colbert stayed in the system. Jon Stewart got out and you really saw it evidenced, evidenced in the way that how how quickly people have been conditioned to remove you, you couldn't even take the funny right because somebody yeah. like colbert couldn't even take the funny in that interview mm -hmm. whereas 15 years ago it was allowed to you know you could be anti-war and left and a leftist and have and have social cachet yeah it's <clears throat> it, I, in a way i think the arrival of donald trump Donald, Donald Trump to me is an accelerationist mm. and he wasn't trying to be, but if, if somebody is asking me what accelerationism in the political realm looks like, it's Donald Trump. It's somebody who uh, pushed or exacerbated the current climate, you know, 20 years in four years or in, maybe in two. Right. It, and to me, there, there's something incredibly positive or white pilling about that. And it, it does rub a lot of people wrong because, you know, chaos and destruction and disaster is what they think about when they think about accelerationism. It's not really what it is. Well, it's really about, why don't we take a couple seconds to flesh out what you mean by accelerationism? Cause it's, I, I it's not a concept that I've really covered on my show before. Sure. So it's, it's another one that is, is difficult to peg down because it depends on who you're talking about. You know, if you're talking about um, Curtis Yarvin or Nick land or somebody on the right, like for example, Nick lands idea, the way, at least the way I understand it, which is barely because he's quite a bit more intelligent than I am. His idea is to sort of accelerate technology and almost integrate it with the human body in order to transcend current systems. And then you have, you know, somebody like Deleuze or Guattari or somebody in the postmodern school like that or post-structural school looking to uh, perhaps accelerate the downfall of capitalism. 
And then you have crazy white nationalists and race warriors who are trying to accelerate social collapse because they don't want to be integrated with people that don't agree with them. So it's, it's very difficult to peg down exactly what someone is talking about when they say you may not want to get caught up in, for example, a race war or the downfall of capitalism, because that's fucking crazy. So I would say for me, it's looking at the current climate, uh, political, socioeconomic climate, cultural climate, and saying that there is nothing sustainable here. It is destined for collapse and it would be better for everybody to get it over with sooner where it can be controlled rather than later where nobody's ready for it. But you, you would rather have control over a terrible outcome in order to facilitate as much peace and prosperity as possible rather than have it surprise you later and end up not being able to react to it properly. So when I think about accelerationism, it is how do we contain this, control the collapse, right? Kind of move it into a box that we have control over. And then knowing that it's going to eventually not work, how do we guide it there as safely as possible for us? And then while we're doing that, hopefully uh, start to create our own systems that can withstand this or that will be there as the trampoline or the pillow after the fall, because uh, you may or may not agree, your listeners may or may not agree. This idea of Western Republican governance, democratic governance um, has failed us for whatever reason. And it might not be in our lifetime. It might not be in four years. It might be in a hundred years, but I don't see any way that it can be sustained without, I mean, massive, massive dictatorial leadership or takeover or just a fundamental you know uh, destruction of the entire system so that's has it, kind of my idea of accelerationism and i feel like okay. trump sort of did that work for some of us do you think he did that as an do you think he did that actively or do you think it was an effect from his actions uh he did not do it actively okay. no. we would agree on that then okay yeah um and then the second follow-up I had to that was, do you think that it has failed us or do you think that it's just failing? Um, because, because the it, in addition to like Western, okay, so Western Republican forms of government, but then we also might just say the current world order post-World War II. Or if, you, or if you like, you know, it's where do you start the clock? Or is it the progressive, or is it the larger progressive world that was started in the, you know, the end of the 20th, or the end of the 19th into the 20th century. You know, I, I think, I think popular Liberty who I've had on the show a couple of times, he's been on mats and hopefully will be on Pete soon um, has a really good take on that. And it, it's the first time I'd really heard it. And he, he would make the claim that the, the constitution, for example, created a low time preference for power in the United States federal government. And when you create a low time preference for power, or a low time preference in general, you tend to create savings in an economic sense. Mm -hmm. And so what that ended up doing, in his opinion, is the government essentially accumulated power, saved power, put power in a bank, and accumulated it over time to grow into the massive state that we have now. I think that's an interesting point that um, kind of shows that government is inevitable or some sort of statecraft is inevitable. And and then Matt uh, made the point on Freeman that the Enlightenment was a mistake. And I think that's an interesting path to go down, too. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if that's true or not true. I, I don't know. But it, it's it's interesting to think about the cycles and patterns that play out through yep. 
material to the mystical, back to the material, back to the mystical again. And that's you kind of see theory. how these things sort of, yeah, which or is it's interesting. Integral related. I, uh, it's related to integral. I'd be interested to hear more about that from you. I, I know uh, James Jenneman had mentioned it to me on the side, and I looked into it a little bit. Um, I'm very amenable to having that discussion because it's not mm -hmm. something that I completely understand it and probably should. Yeah. I, so what's interesting is I'm sure, so it's Matt Erickson of the King Pilled podcast um, and, that we're talking about here. And I'm sure when I speak to him and we talk about this, we're going to come out with some agreement, but there's, you, you kind of saw me visibly wince mm -hmm. there as we were talking when you mentioned, like, I'm going to reject the enlightenment. Now, I, as a skeptic, I have to accept the fact that I could be missing data to substantiate such a claim. But I don't think it's the same thing to say that there were errors in the Enlightenment and important errors. And, they, and the, we're going to circle back to religion because, you know, because it, it does circle back to that point that there were oversteps of the Enlightenment thinkers, broadly speaking. But how much of that? It, but, 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 what, but the answer that comes back into my mind or the response to that that comes into my mind is, but how much of that is, again, the benefit of history, the mm. benefit of the technology, what we can understand today is completely different from what they could understand at that point in time. That doesn't mean they were wrong. That means they were figuring it out. And again, this is, the, uh, this is how I construe the, the bulk of human thought is how are we figuring out the best ideas and you know, how do those ideas push us forward? Now, the other point to make is that Nietzsche did say that you know, the, worst, the worst men often do the most for humanity. So it could be the fact that the, the Enlightenment was a horrible mistake, but it did give us this technology that we get to that we get to um, that we get to have. There was so the Enlightenment, as far as I understand it, and tell me if you disagree, was effectively the splitting of human consciousness, if you will, between two very distinct and separate entities. And part of this had to do with the larger scientific revolution occurring at the time which was, again, maybe just a product of technology, many other factors that are far too numerous for us to get into. But it was it, into two distinct entities, your instinct and your reason. And so the idea was, if we could remove the instinct and focus on reason, we could create a better society, right? And, and because, of, because we live in a world of kings and landed gentry and nobility where you know, these people who are stupid because they're, you know, because they've been inbred for multiple generations. So by definition, they become less and less intelligent and, and you know, and, and probably more and more disagreeable and um, and so on. But you have these, sorry, these two distinct things, instinct and reason, but they were very, very separate from each other. And, and reason was the only thing that could save us. We thought that instinct was basically something that we could do away with. Well, in 21st century America, you know, I was born in the 90s, so I am a millennial um, in 21st century America in in the new millennia. I don't think you can say the same thing because we've seen the evidence of what we try to do. And we're just focusing on reason. Mm. Right. I mean, you don't you, you don't get very far. And this is this is kind of this. This definitely harkens to your your comments on post libertarianism as an idea, because libertarians in that we can understand it as a class of people have a propensity for argumentation, for logical thinking, for and for putting all those things together into something cohesive and, you know, in many cases, singular. So as I was reading Kant, Moritz, um, Hegel and a few other people uh, way back when whose names escaped me at the moment, this was a this was a very common theme throughout all of Enlightenment thinking. Well, I was raised in the church, um, Roman Catholic, 
I went to Catholic school my whole life. Um, I think that's something that we share. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to Catholic school my whole life. And so I was, but I wasn't in the type of Catholicism that is very restrictive. If anything, I was in, cause I, I was um, in general raised by Benedictines as far as my schooling goes, which have a far more collegiate and monastic view of things, which is a lot more about praxis to use the word is about how do you act in the world a little bit more so than, you know, maybe just your random diocesan priest, because the Benedictine philosophy is an entire book. Like you as a layperson could follow the Benedictine's rules for communal living. It doesn't have to be in a Christian context. Um, it, it's, 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 and it's, and it was discovered over multiple generations. And, you know, so it wasn't a very restrictive Catholic upbringing, which I know some people have. And certainly if you're talking about evangelical Christianity, that tends to be very restrictive. You know, the Baptist pre the Baptists who, won't let their daughter go out and, or dance, you know, the movie footloose. Okay. But in, as a consequence of my Catholic upbringing, I always thought that the enlightenment thinkers misunderstood the, uh, the degree to which faith plays a role in our conception of the world. And this, this coincides with skepticism as well, because uh, Montaigne, who I was kind of, I'd pulled out an apology for Raymond Sebon to see if I could find a cool quote but he was a um, he was a Renaissance era philosopher and, you know, so very, very Christian as a consequence. But he was a skeptic. And what basically what he comes to is that the only way we can know anything is through God's grace. And he goes through, you know, basically a litany of things of why, you know, see, look, we think we're so special that knowledge will bring us joy. But look at all this way. Look at all these ways in which knowledge doesn't bring us joy. We think we're the smartest animal. Look at all the ways in which animals are intelligent and they can and they show a level of intelligence we think that we europeans are so enlightened but we're discovering these people throughout the world on these islands that seem far happier than we do you know writing in paris france or in or in london england and so to the extent that i react against the enlightenment i'm just going i put things into the into three categories i'll take a trinitarian approach to this which is to say we have three major drives instinctual which you know incorporates emotion, evolution, um, uh, and you know other more unconscious mechanisms uh, of, of the human psyche and body. We have our reason, which is pretty evident, or our capacity for reason, which is maybe more precise. Which is to say, it's a tool that can be. We have this natural logical structure to our brain, and we think, and we generally find the world to be a logical place as a consequence. And without this, there could be no understanding, there could be no humanity, there could be no civilization, but there's also faith. And faith, I think, is kind of, faith is the starting point. There's the, right, there's this, there's this larger historical narrative that without the Christian, without the universal Christian idea of a, of a universe ordained and created by God, we might never have discovered the mechanisms by which that operates, that translates into mathematics, geometry, so on and so forth. So that's, that's so, which, so I'm not here as the pro enlightenment guy, mm-hmm. but where I find, where I take exception, that's why I say, I'm sure we would come out to an amenable solution, but it's like, I don't like the whole fireball throwing. Well, you know, screw the enlightenment. There was nothing good there. And I'm not saying that's the argument he's making, but right. you know, he's what he's, what he does when he does that is he's purposefully deploying a heavy anchor by saying, oh, no, we're not doing the enlightenment thing anymore. And that completely, you know, that that changes that changes the tenor of a conversation almost instantaneously. 
both in the case of somebody from with ignorance, right? If you don't understand what that means, then you're not going to, you, you can't interact. And somebody who does understand what that means, well, it, it, it tends to affect you in a, in a very visceral way, which is, you know, good, good influence. So if Matt listens to this. <laughs> oh, I, I'm, I'm sure you will. And I, I probably should let, I mean, I will let him speak for himself. I'll, I'll tell you what, um, well, maybe you, yeah, so you here, touch, let me, let me serve that up with my, on, with my favorite question, which is how does that strike you? <laughs> I mean, you, you touched on a lot there that I, I wasn't being dismissive. I was taking notes while you were talking so that I, I kind mm-hmm. of could follow a, a, a train of thought here. Um, something that became as somebody who was an, I personally was an atheist for most of my life. And I've only started re-exploring religion since the COVID bullshit has, I'm sorry, can I swear on your show? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, I've only started exploring religion again since the COVID nightmare has, has, uh, occurred. And the reason was it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, um, Pat Pascal said there's a God shaped hole in man's heart and, and Nietzsche, you know, has a much longer quote than God is dead, which you've recited on your show. And I'm not going to, we don't need to ad nauseum that, um, there's, there's some sort of innate need for meaning and purpose in human beings. And when that is denied through the spiritual or the mystical, it tends to be found in the material and then turned mystical. You know, the, the idea that the, the face mask becomes a talisman or the uh, vaccine becomes a baptism or some sort of way to signal to your in-group that you are part of the church or the quote unquote church that I don't know what it is. I mean, you, you probably could put it into better words than I can. But there's something about us that there's a need to worship. There's a need to believe in something bigger than us, to in-group, to signal, to believe. And I feel that the through most of history, or at least the history that I've read, or that's you know been allowed to exist to the point where I can read it, there seems to be this battle between the mystical and the material as if one is good and the other one is bad. And I like to take the approach that there, there should be a healthy balance because from my opinion, I mean, the way I look at the enlightenment, I mean, a lot of good came out of that. I mean, you touched on a bunch of it, right? The, you know, just the idea, it, forget the enlightenment, the fact that we could, you know, basically uh, HIV and AIDS isn't, some, isn't a death sentence anymore. Yep. came out of modern medicine and the ability for people to, you know, not uh, wave potions around or smoke, blow smoke in people's faces. How, so, how about a how about a serious laceration? Isn't a, isn't a death? I mean, seriously, not a death sentence. Yes. So, um, it, it, I think I, I want to give credit where credits due here. I didn't come up with this. I think it was Vin Armani, and it wasn't on my show. It was on somebody else's. He said, you know, if you go all the way mystical, you end up as schizophrenic, and if you go all the way material, you end up autistic. Mm-hmm. And there's a healthy balance in the middle of understanding both of those things are important. For some reason, we need the mystical and the material is helpful. So rather than say, you know, it's all one way or all the other way, I think maybe the growth out of the the cycle and pattern is to just accept both things and start delving into, you know, how can we have this, maybe it's integral theory, which I'm still learning about, you Mm. know, how do we encompass all of these ideas and stop, you know, picking one over the other as if that's necessary. And I right. don't think that's necessary at all. And, and that kind of brings me to libertarianism, which um, I don't think anybody had said this before I did maybe like six or seven months ago that I, I saw libertarianism as Christianity minus, minus God. 
I, I saw it as exactly the same thing as Christianity. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do unto others. But for some reason, they just took the Christ part out. And so I, maybe the, the click for me, right, was, okay, well, if that's what it is, then it's not necessary. We just go to Christianity. And we don't need libertarianism. Mm-hmm. And if you want to just follow the life of Christ as a utilitarian tool to achieve what you want in your community, then just pretend he didn't really exist or he wasn't the son of God and just follow that and mm-hmm. call that what, what you want. But that seems to be what libertarianism is. It seems like when you took the, when they took the God part out, that that was what kind of screwed up the whole mechanism. And maybe that's why it's not resonating with people because they can't feel something on a deep emotional level. There's something filling that hole in their heart. So, so it's I, just, a, I'm just yeah. post- postulating that, but yeah, no, no. So, and, and so I see libertarianism a little bit differently. Um, and this is, this is tied to why I like to conceive of things in terms of like a school of thought and why I think it's an important question um, because it's, it's about, it's kind of about establishing limits. And once you establish the limits of something, um, you know, you're actually, you, you can actually do something with it because without, without boundaries, there isn't a thing there, right? Like I, in fact, I would argue, and you know, this, this is, this is a little bit of a teaser, but I would argue that boundaries are actually the beginning point of freedom as, as almost a, as almost a definition. Um, you know, there's, and my, the, the little piece of little sentence I read long ago was in Leibniz and Leibniz was answering, a, was answering a bishop about free will, um, and how, you know, like, oh, well, if, you know, how can you possibly, or maybe not a bishop, but how can you possibly answer the question of free will if all these things, if you say that all these things exist within itself, because Leibniz had this very interesting cosmology called monadology, where every particle in existence, the world is, the world is consisted of particles, but in each of those particles, the rest of the, the entire universe exists. So it is both, it's kind of like this subdivisional thing that was, this was, and Leibniz was Leibniz was the dominant philosophical school of thought before the scientific revolution, or at least as it was taught to me on the on in, in Europe, in European. Um, oops, oh I, shoot! There we go. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Can you say, say the word again that you just said. Monadology. Le- Le- okay. Leibniz. Leibniz is the philosopher. Gotcha. Um, so you know so it's like there is this there is this thing where freedom actually has to exist within a boundary like our in that we have free will it exists within a boundary because we are not a limitless creature and so what people most of the time if you talk to somebody who's not really trained um to think or to or you know and just more trained to react is like well you know freedom is to do whatever i want i don't think that's technically possible right because if we wanted to do everything we wanted to do then we wouldn't have to probably do anything because we would get other people to do everything for us and we would just kind of exist. But where was I going with that? Sorry. <laughs> um, libertarian, oh, libertarianism as a, so, so Christianity is obviously an older idea than libertarianism, but that's, that's not, a, that's not in dispute. And so as a consequence, given that libertarianism arose in the West, it is necessarily Christian or has Christian elements because it's because Christianity is infused throughout Western civilization, whether the atheists out there want it to be or not. Um, but there's a, but there's a, there's the missing link here is also liberalism, right? The broader school of liberalism that came about during the 20th century. I see libertarianism and, and tell me how this strikes you. I see libertarianism 
as a distillation, a special, almost, almost like special operations, if you will, of the liber of the larger liberal ethos. And, and, and we can kind of, we can kind of conceptualize it this way. You know, we have this guy Rothbard who is inheriting this tradition of thought. You know, we started with Rothbard anarcho-capitalism who's inheriting this tradition of thought from Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian school. And he's trying to go into political theory beyond that. And so what does he do? Well, he takes out anything in liberalism that isn't worth that, that, that isn't necessary, absolutely necessary. And where, what do we come up with? We come up with this very, very strict interpretation of, 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 of a political thought of a political philosophy, a way in which we should orient ourselves in the world an end goal. And most importantly, the end state, which you, which you specified as well, because you're, that's exactly what they do, which was always something that bothered me early in early in my time, but let me not lose my train of thought. We now have seen that these things are again, maybe insufficient. So when I entered the Liberty space, the big debates were minarchy and anarchy Thin and thin versus thick libertarianism. Mm -hmm. Now, thin versus thick, I always found to be entirely obvious. The answer was thin because without that, libertarianism really isn't anything special. There's nothing distinct about it from a larger, again, liberal conception of the world. And, you know, a liberal, and, and this is in a positive sense of the word. And by the way, if you're a conservative, you're either a conservative liberal or you're a conservative progressive, because how can a conservative be both anti liberal and anti progressive? I can get into that if you want, but let's, but libertarianism is this specific distillation. And so it's necessarily thin. The second one, minarchy and anarchy, I could never be bothered to take a position on it. And maybe that's because I found skepticism beforehand. And what's very interesting is how now the conversation has caught up to that point where a lot of people are saying, yeah, it really isn't because we've actually seen the demonstration of this in the COVID in the aftermath of the, of the lockdowns and of the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, so where to go with that? Um, give me a strict definition of liberalism, just a one sentence definition of how, how you're looking at it right now in, in the context of what we're talking about. Yeah, liberalism is a school of thought in which um, it relies on so it relies on democracy in part or representative government, maybe more generally speaking, and in general values individual freedom. Um, and free markets, hmm. but it's, and so, and maybe it's, and it's also negative, I guess, in the sense that it's an absence because liberalism really wasn't liberalism wasn't really defined before the progressives took it over. Right. Yeah. I, 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 I think, I, I think the idea of liberalism as you presented it, which is fair and probably how anyone would present it. I just wanted to be on the same page with you. Yeah. Um, I think that was a necessary thought step in a multi-step process mm -hmm. of trying to figure out what is the right, and by right, I mean most productive way to for humanity to flourish. And it, it's probably a reaction to there being a lot of people, all you know, a lot more people than there were in like, you know, ancient times or something. Uh, trying to figure out how to coexist in in ways they never had to learn how to coexist before, mm -hmm. because you have integrations of society, you have um, obviously slavery movements ending, um, people integrating that way, different cultures integrating, uh, globalism becoming a thing, technology. I mean, even 500 years ago, there's technology that's bringing people together, and it, maybe that's a reaction to that to try to figure out what to do 
with something that humanity had never really, you know, if, you know, Alexander the Great took over, you know, an area, he just enslaved people or forced them to do a certain thing. So this idea that we're all going to sort of, you know, voluntarily integrate into society and that's just going to be super cool. Right. I think gave birth to the idea of liberalism. I'm not sure that's an end in, in and of itself rather than it is a way to try to explain a phenomenon that nobody had experienced before. So I, I don't, I, I see it as a necessary step. I, I don't see it as something that anyone has to take right now in 2021 as something that needs to be a thing anymore. And I, I, I'm not saying it isn't or doesn't have to be a thing. Yeah. And I would agree with you because I think the the tagline for my last project was let's talk about liberalism understood properly. And, you know, (laughs) so you could see how far you could see how far just in the context of this conversation, how much things have changed since I wrote that tagline out. Um, Because it was this idea, well, if only everybody understood. Then it would be fine. And it is a very it's a very difficult lesson to learn that most people aren't interested in understanding. And if you're somebody who goes through, and this is the way I can, I can talk about it is that especially if you go through the university system and you don't, you know, you don't run up against, you know, you don't, you don't run up against a really bad professor, let's say, or, or what have you. But if you're a reasonably bright person in the university system, you'll be okay. Right. You'll probably get, you'll get decent grades. You'll, you know, you'll do okay. Um, you won't, you won't get targeted. Although that's probably changed now. But it was but you were also you're also surrounded by people who are interested in working out ideas and because uh, because that's the ostensible purpose of what you're doing at the university. At the very least, they have to listen to you talk, even if they don't care. Mm-hmm. And when and what was a big change for me was when I kind of just started working all the time and I spent too long in the university. I never got my piece of paper, um, you know, which is a detriment to them, not to me, I feel. But the, but it's but it's this. And, and now I interact with a lot of people who never went to college or, and aren't even interested in ideas beyond, you know, maybe something entertaining or a player, you know, or what they're going to, or the only idea they have is what they're going to have for dinner, where they're going to go on vacation and whether or not their wife is going to sleep with them that night. Like, and, and that's so many people. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. And this is, this is the point is really coming to grips with Nietzsche's conception of the herd was a big deal for me. Um, and, and actually understanding that when, especially in that we act as groups, there is, um, there is not the, I was going to say mindlessness, there's a mindlessness to it, but that's not, that's not exactly correct because it just, it's not a, um, we're, we're a cudgel instead of a scalpel when we act as groups. Mm -hmm. And most people are very comfortable with the cudgel because a cudgel is a far easier weapon to wield than a knife or let's say a sword, right? There's a reason why the knights were, why the knights had the broadsword and why, you know, the, the farmer had uh, just a, like I said, a mace or a cudgel or something simple to wield in battle. And I think reason and the, the, the corollary to this is, I think I look at reason as a sword. I think, I think ideas and concepts are tools that we use. And to the extent that we use them, we have to understand them that way. Yeah, that's probably true. Something popped into my mind when you were talking there. Uh, well, a couple of things. One about the university system that's probably been talked about too much. So maybe I should just leave that leave that <laughs> alone. But it, it was uh, when I was thinking about what you were saying and tying it to the Enlightenment, for example, or you know even those who would consider themselves like woke or enlightened today. 
Um, it's this sort of concept of, you know, very, very smart people operating in a, a very unique elite class, um, looking for ways to escape human nature or rise above it, or possibly pull people out of human nature or uh, teach them ways to rise above their own, you know, natural tendencies to be tribal or worship things or whatever, mm -hmm. and trying to pull people out of that. And it seems to me that that is not working well. And uh, you can, one of us can talk to Matt about what he means by the, you know, the enlightenment, not, it shouldn't have happened or whatever, but th that was kind of my interpretation of it. It was, you know, you can, you, the Kings, you, not you specifically try to deny human nature or try to pull people out of it or try to enlighten them in a way that makes them not want to succumb to, to their own, you know, innate naturalistic uh, tendencies but they seem to fucking do it anyway, it, regardless. It, it, give them three days without electricity or pump COVID into a marketplace, mm -hmm. and it seems they very quickly forget the Enlightenment ever existed. And they go right back within like 72 hours. They go right back to that innate need for, to find meaning and purpose and to find their in-group and to be tribalistic and go into survival mode like, like that. Like it takes yeah. a lifetime to pull people out of it, but like two and a half days to go right back into it again. Mm -hmm. And I think just... I don't know what that means or how to use that in a useful way to move society or maybe just our in-group forward, but I think it's at least important to bring it up and, and say that it's a thing that's happening. Yeah, well, the, I would say Marxism, ex Mar Marxism explicitly and progressivism explicitly both reject the idea of, of, a, human, of, of a human nature. They would mm. be they they would be very materialistic. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes, they would be antithetical to they're actually antithetical to the question of Darwin and to Darwinism and evolution, which might sound convoluted, but it actually isn't because social like because Darwinism Darwin came out with this theory. This is um, Thomas Leonard's um, progressive, the progressive era, ra race and eugenics in the progressive era. Great book. Highly recommend. Can't recommend it enough to understand the, the importance to which eugenics um, played a in influenced thinking at that time because it's been largely whitewashed from history. Why? Because largely speaking, we've lived under a progressive paradigm for about a hundred years or so, give or take. But, but, but part of it, part of this eugenic notion, which I think in like your sixth grade textbook, they call it social Darwinism. But part of this mm -hmm. eugenics notion was that was saying, oh, hey, so, so there's this dude, Darwin. He just came up with this theory. He calls it evolution. It seems pretty cool. Here's the thing. It takes about 10 million years for us to create thumbs. So that's kind of going to be a problem when we want to create the kingdom of God here on earth, because we also have the social gospel movement occurring at the same time. And in general, you know, we have the evangelicalism of Protestant, of, of, of Protestant, various Protestant faiths too. But here's the thing. So Darwin takes a long time. Evolution works on its own time frame, and we can't be guaranteed of an outcome. And look, there's all these people that we don't need to have around. Like, what does this guy really do? He's sweeping the street. Do we really need to have somebody do that? Do we need to have three people doing that? Maybe we can get rid of a couple of them. So let's take the principles of social Dar of, of Darwin, of evolution, and you know, animal husbandry, which we've been doing for generations, and let's mm -hmm. do eugenics. Let's actually try to create the perfect person, create the perfect society. And this is the impotence for our education system, the Prussian model was we had all these filthy papists coming from overseas 
And it's important that we put it in this construct because that was the, de- that was a defining characteristic, right? Whether you were a Protestant or, uh, or whether you were a Catholic far more, far less so today, but it was, it was incredibly important at the time. And all these papists were coming over with their rituals and their statues, and we needed to just make them good Christians. And if we made them good Christians instead of Catholics, well, then we could actually solve things. And we don't have to respond to any of this because again, man doesn't have a nature. We can actually create the person as we want them to be the early, a lot of the early socialists, the person who it is escapes me, but you know, I think it actually might've been Marx who said, you know, in, in communism, man will, will fish in the morning, work the factory line in the afternoon and write poetry in the evening or some, some variation of that. And they had this idea and we see this, you know, I don't, I, I can't remember the last time I really interacted with somebody who, who would say this, but we see this expressed commonly in the idea of, oh, so you're saying I have to work in order to survive? It's like, yes, of course, because poverty is the default state of man, right? Without is, re- without is where we begin. It's a question of, you know, this is, this is the seemingly counterintuitive nature of economics. This is, is understanding that poverty is the default state. So what actually creates wealth is the important question, not what creates poverty. Yeah, I mean, it's you're more well read on this than than I am. Um, I definitely understand the ideas. Uh, There's, again, this consistent push to fix humans throughout Mm -hmm. a lot of philosophy, throughout um, a lot of, you know, materialism or dialectical materialism, a, a lot of the essentially everything I can I can see that's come out of the left since the you know, French revolution, it has all in, in, you know, even Rousseau, like that era, uh, Tom, uh, Hobbes, like that, that whole group, it is all about fixing humans. It, that there's something mm-hmm. wrong with humans. It needs to be fixed. And there are dozens, if not hundreds of ideas about how to do that, uh, about how to fix human beings so that they operate differently than the way they're born to operate. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, until I, I was going to say until somebody comes up with a way to actually achieve that, but I, I don't think without maybe like uh, molding technology into our bodies, like implanting chips in our head and, and changing our blood to oil or something that that's even remotely possible. It seems to only cause schisms and, and destruction and death and chaos. Mm-hmm. And maybe if, you know, libertarianism really had a, a, a goal <laughs> it would be to start embracing human nature and figure out a way not to control it, but to invent or engineer a system that responds to the proper incentives on its face that then leads people naturally to the point that other folks would try to orchestrate. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's culture. Mm, yeah. Right. So, so, so culture one, is, one thing that's fascinated you know, me is what creates culture? What is this thing? How mm-hmm. does it operate? And, and, and how, how can we schematize it to understand it? So, yeah. Sure. So, so I would say, I mean, it's pretty, you know, everybody is familiar with the quote, uh, politics is downstream from culture, but I, I would add to that, that culture is downstream from religion. And that in order to understand where the culture is, somebody has to understand where the worship lies, where the collective worship sure. lies. Does, yeah, does yeah. it lie with God? Does it lie with Joe Biden? Does it lie with Fauci? 
you know, where, where is the religion? What is the worship? And then when you get that, maybe that's where you start because mm-hmm. culture can't exist without some type of belief system. It's just that there wouldn't even be a culture. Mm. All right. So I'm going to do a semantical trick and then we're going to, and, but then we'll, but then I'll actually address what you said. So the semantical okay. trick is to say the root of culture is cult and cult has, and, and, and a cult was at least in my understanding, this is Joseph Piper leisure is the basis for culture, but like the root cult actually refers to various cults, which is in effect a religion. Hmm. Right. And so, and the idea, and so the, like I said, the book is leisure is the basis of culture, but um, you can find it at Liberty fund. Cause that's where I got it. Uh, I was at a conference. I asked the guy, what's the most, what's the most random book you have here? Cause you know, it's just stacked high with nothing wrong with it. Right. But it's a college conference. So it's stacked high with, you know, road to serfdom, human action, all great stuff. I'm like, what's the weirdest book you have here? He said it was this one. So I got it. It was really, really interesting, but he talked about the, he talked a lot about the cultists and he talked a lot about and, and, and what that meant in ancient Greece. And so the way he put it was that, you know, the cult was like a specific veneration of a God. So it wasn't quite Zeus because everybody worships Zeus. It was, well, we're, we're, we worship Zeus of the marketplace in particular. So mm. it's this perfect veneration. So the degree to which they, so there's, there's definitely a connection there when you're talking about religion, culture, and, um, and politics. And that's, there's also a Trinitarianism there. And so if I wanted to try and affix that to what I said before, I would say in part that politics is the instinct in some respects, culture is the reason and religion might be the faith, um, which kind of, which kind of goes between both. Uh, it, it plays across both the other, uh, the other two spheres. Well, can I add something to that? I, Absolutely. I was thinking um, maybe when we, when we think of culture and maybe you're not doing this, but for somebody listening, when you think of culture, you might think of like the American culture or mm. Southern culture or Northeastern culture. And I would say then if that is the way it's being interpreted, then the culture in that aspect becomes a pantheon of religions or a pantheon of gods. Yeah, right. Culture is not monolithic by its nature. Right. We tend right. to, and it's most people like tend to make it that one. we're talking about. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. America has had at least two, probably more. And in fact, I would, I would even argue, you know, there's, you know, culture begins from, uh, you know, from yourself, but then, you know, you have culture at the level of family, friends, you have culture in your vocation. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's job has its own specific culture. You have regional cultures, you have a society, which is usually where it's bounded by some kind of a government. You have a civilization, which seems to span beyond, but not necessarily right. You know, Western, you know, like there's Western civilization and that's kind of understood to be all of Western Europe and most of America, but maybe not all of it. And then you right. Um, so when we, so that's, that's one way you can kind of move up the various degrees to which culture interacts with an individual, I would argue. Well, let me ask you then mm-hmm. what you think of this. Um, is the human mind as it's evolved and adapted to being here in 2021, sitting here having this conversation, is the human mind even capable of compartmentalizing or making sense or even surviving all of that, all of that information, all of those opposing inputs? Maybe the the problem is that we're not we're not uh, evolved to handle that much. You know, there's so many like you just went through a whole hierarchy of sort of cultures and religions and and things that different social circles that Mm -hmm. may or may not overlap. And this may it it seems to me that that's a lot of um, a lot of minutia for the human mind to have to sort out 
all at once over like just a few hundred years. Yep. And if it takes, you know, 10 million years to develop a, a limb of some sort, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we're being bombarded with a bunch of shit that we can't fucking understand. And that's why we oh, are yeah. where we are. And we're trying our best to understand it, but we're not allowing ourselves to go back to the fundamentals, the traditions mm-hmm. that, that allowed us to survive for a million years or, you know, 13,000 mm-hmm. in, you know, our particular prehistory um, we're, we're ignoring that. And we're trying to pretend like we're so much smarter than people were, you know, in the stone age, but we're really not, we're not yeah. evolutionarily yeah. any we're different. Apes. Yeah. We're freaking apes, man. We're like, have you ever been to a nightclub? I just went to an, I think you're, I think you're in the service industry of memory serves, but yeah, you're still owned right? one. I owned a dance. Club. Okay. So, I mean, like I was, <laughs> I just saw a, a woman literally take a shit. It's standing on the dance floor, take a shit and it fucking plopped right out at her feet, out of her dress. Like, yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. 16 years of this shit. It's (laughs) nobody wants to be reminded of the, no, it's, it's, it's difficult for a lot of people to be reminded of the fact of how close to animals we actually are. It's something that Mm. it's, it's because we've been taught that we're these beautiful, special things, right. Um, under the progressive logic, let's be, let's be, um, pedantic for a second we are actually looking for these things and we're trying to put, we're trying to find the answers. And so we are, we in this broader Liberty space and this content creation space, we are searching for these answers. What we what I think is a, maybe a better way of saying it is that a lot of people are being prevented from looking in this, in these kinds of directions, mm-hmm. because, because again, the because the television is a window. Right. It is a window and people think it's reality, just like a scene, just like just like a scene escape is outside of your door. It is they don't understand the degree to which narrative works. And there are and here's the here's the frightening thought. There are tens of millions, if not billions of people who will never understand that the TV is not a window, that what you see on the television is not and is not a direct feed of reality. That's kind of a terrifying thought. Mm. but i don't think but it's not but 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 the beauty of it is that's the way things have always been there's nothing new about this there's nothing new about the fact there's nothing new about the fact that most people don't have something interesting to say yeah it's a shiny veneer on the same history yep and also we're also with the nature of technology you know vis-a-vis twitter which is you know how we connected so it obviously has some use there's this, there's the, there's the benefit to put it in economic terms, but then there's a cost. The cost is you actually get to see just how dumb most people are. Mm. And guess what? Sorry, but that doesn't just because you're a libertarian doesn't excuse you from that. You might be dumb in another way. You might be really, really smart when it comes to economic theory, but you might be really, really dumb when it comes to, I don't know, dancing or driving or singing or medical, you know, being a medical professional. Because, you know, these things require a certain amount of skill. And, you know, this is this is where Mises talks about praxeology as a science unto itself, this logic, this science of human action. And it's and it, it, it's um, one of my favorite things about Mises was how he completely rejects the tabula rasa, mm. which is an important which is an important evolution in the broader school of thought, because. Right. We can connect Mises to Locke. Right. John, we can connect we can connect Ludwig von Mises to John Locke who was profoundly influential on the founders. But John Locke was the one who said, oh, well, we need a, we need, you know, we, we start as a blank slate. We start as a tabula rasa. 
Well, that's obviously not true because we have because we have evolution. We have millions of years of evolution behind us, even before humans existed. Right. This is the whole lobster thing Jordan Peterson talked about. But we have millions of years of evolution that created things like that, that, that created the being that we are today. So we can't it can't be said that we are a blank slate. Right. But, it, but let me connect it to what I was just saying when we're talking about that. I, I was I was um, I was hanging out with a coworker, and we were I was um, right after the Kathy Newman interview with Jordan Peterson, which is a famous interview mm-hmm. of his. Yeah. Where she so would always saying. So what you're saying is right. So she was always trying to she was always trying to bring things back into the corporate woke narrative. We didn't call it woke at that time, but that's what it was. This constant and, and wokeism. Right. So my website is an answer to the inevitable question. Why am I not woke? Well, it's because I've been awake. Like this isn't, there is no like coming, there is no waking up to these things. I've been studying them for most of my life at this point. But what Jordan Peterson, uh, we, we were talking about that. And so he was, t- he was breaking out the point of lobsters. Right. And so the argument that Jordan Peterson puts forward to be simple is to put it simply is that lobsters have a react to serotonin, just like humans do. And lobsters actually have a very complicated hierarchy and it's tied to their serotonin levels. So a a lobster that's high in the hierarchy will have a lot of serotonin and he will actually be bigger and be able to fight better as a consequence of it. But if he gets removed from his home, he'll actually lose serotonin and become weaker. So his Jordan Peterson's point, which is completely well taken. And if I consider the fact that I went through 20 something years of schooling without contending with the concept of it, that hierarchy is biological and that hierarchy exists before anything else that we've done as human beings. And the fact that that was never explicitly stated as a Catholic, you see it in practice because there's a lot of hierarchy in the Catholic church, which is why it seems so obvious to me. But in my, in my grand education that I received, not that I went to some like crazy great schools, but there was never any concept of hierarchy. It was never discussed. It was, it was pro- and in that, in that it was brought up, it was probably brought up within like a communist or a leftist uh, construct, in which case I summarily ignored it. But, but there are these things, right? And, and this is the beans that we are. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, yeah, you nailed it, man. I mean, that's really, yeah, re- really the last couple of minutes of, of you talking there is really for, for me and I think a few other people, the starting point of trying to figure out where to go from here. That, mm-hmm. that that really is the essence of human nature. Yes. And, and I just so, remember my point. Sorry to cut you off. I just remember my whole no, point, please. which was I showed this to my friend. I'm like, look, isn't this so interesting? And he's like, so is he saying we were lobsters? <laughs> and he was making a joke, right? Like he's a, and, and this is a, he's a good man. He's a great father. He's a smart dude. But when I was, but when I put it to him, it was, so what we're lobsters. Is that his point? Mm-hmm. That yeah, is, that's um, most people. <laughs> It's most people, right? That's kind of, yeah, exactly what I was thinking. It's, you know, I, I was, um, okay, let me not tell you about the lunch I had with my mother today. I was going to talk about that, but let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> um, no, what you touched on, I think is the starting point. I think it's, it's understanding that humans are basically what they were at the start of all of this 13,000 years ago. We haven't really come that much further. We've come up with, come up with a bunch of ideas and we generally tend to screw ourselves when we implement them. So short of turning into, you know, however many billion lemmings and just destroying ourselves voluntarily, I assume we all want to continue to live. And so there has to be some way for folks who are not 
leftists, who are not progressives, who are not communists, to come up with their own theory of how to use this to the human advantage. And, and, and I don't like eugenics. I don't like the idea of messing around with biology or screwing with people that way. I, I think the Misesian idea of incentives, um, it, to me, that's very appealing. Well, I'm going to have to flesh that out with a few people before I am comfortable talking about it more. Mm -hmm. But I feel if you could if you could look at, for example, the idea of Encapistan as, as a real tangible possibility, mm -hmm. and you were to just, you were to engineer it, you were to engineer a constitution, you were to engineer uh, a, a military structure, uh, law and order, you were, you were to lay it all down. How would you incentivize the people you want to live with to voluntarily work within that situation without being forced to? It's a very difficult question. I don't know if it has an answer. Uh, I just feel like saying that libertarianism is the be all end all. And every, if everybody just did it, we'd all be great is, is not uh, useful. Amen. And so, and so, you know, it, it's the, the only person I can think of is um, popular liberty is the only person I could think of. that's actually thought about this on a really high IQ level. That's way beyond my basis of understanding. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm willing to have the conversation until I can put it into layman's terms, which probably take me a lifetime. Um, you know, how, how do we do that? How do we engineer liberty? I, I think that is the ultimate goal for me. How do, how do I figure out a way to contribute to that conversation? Because yes. there, I don't want to deny human nature. I want to embrace human nature. And by understanding it and embracing it, I also have to give it its due uh, on its limitations. Right. And that, I think that begins the conversation. And we'll see, it's, considering everybody I talk to is considerably smarter than I am, hopefully they'll run with it and we'll get somewhere productive. Well, but here's the interesting thing, right? There is a, there is a school of thought, academic thought, that does try to address this idea of evolution and, and its impacts, right? Evolutionary biology, evolutionary mm -hmm. psychology. Let me name some prominent ones of those that I know very well. Gad Sad, Brett Weinstein, Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson, anything, anything connecting these people, maybe the fact that the establishment, the cathedral, if you will, has been attacking them nonstop since they dared poke their heads out of the little hobbit hole that the, at the, that academia gave them. There is there, you know, because for me, that was a huge mind opening thing was when I started to look into evolutionary biology as, as, you know, as a theory, and I'm not saying I can flesh it out, but just understanding the consequences of what we just said, that things like like that our biology informs who we are as a person and that have an, and that has an evolutionary lens and evolution doesn't, it's not evolution's job to create superfluous entities. So, you know, we kind of, there's, there's kind of a reason to it. There is a logic to it that exists on a grander scale. So there is, so there are these people who are endeavoring to do it because they, because it's an interesting thing. And what do we see continuously? We see them being struck down by the media we see them being struck down by government institutions or at the very least ignored by government institutions, which pivots very well into the conception of an elite. And I think in that we can understand that there is an elite, they don't really care how many. They don't they don't care how smart or how dumb you are. They care that you comply. And so that kind of that tends to, if you will, breed a certain. The, the system then that they create will allow for a larger amount of people. I'm de I'm, I like to say I'm directional. I'm not destinational. This is the problem I have with Ancapistan, right? If we're going to start with, it's the starting with the end gate 
And we're just going to, we've already figured it all out and we have no idea how to get there. I've never seen the use in thinking like that. It's never made sense to me. I have this more natural inclination where I'm about, I'm trying to figure out how do we, how do I move forward from where I am? And maybe there are psychological reasons for that and psychological reasons for other people or who the hell knows where it comes from. But I've never been, I've never been convinced or concerned with where things end up. I know that it appears to me that liberty and freedom are very, very useful. I certainly enjoy it. I don't like to be, I don't like to be censored. I don't like to be put down. I don't like to be silenced. Um, so they seem very useful to me and they seem very useful at scale as well. It's a question of how, it's a question, like you said, of how do you engineer it? And there is this, I like, I like that you're talking about the mystical and the, and the, and the material. And there is this mystical element to anarcho-capitalist thought that has been evident to me for a long time. I called it rationalist because it's very deontological in its nature. And it's saying, well, here we have logic and therefore it's like, well, that's not how people work. That's never been how people work. If that, if that's how people work, then we'd all be great. Then we'd all be great creatures. But you know, <laughs> if, if, if that's how people work, then, you know, people wouldn't have to go through messy divorces as a kid, you know, as a child, and you wouldn't have to hear things and see things that you didn't want to see as a person. And there would be no violence. Does that make sense? No, it, it does make sense. And uh, although I, I would add for myself that I, I think the end game, the end goal is of the utmost importance that if there isn't, and this is just for me, I don't want to project onto you or anybody else, mm -hmm. but for me, if I don't know where I'm headed or where I want to see at least myself be right, then, then I don't know what it is that I'm working toward. I'm just thinking for the sake of thinking. And there, there is of course, most of philosophy is that thinking for the sake of thinking. Um, I I'm much more concerned with praxis. I'm much more concerned with thinking for the sake of answering questions. Yeah. And that, that means asking a lot. It doesn't mean answering everything, but I, I ultimately do want answers. And I, I don't think they're, they're going to be that complicated when they come up. I, I do want to make a point about when I talk about Ancapistan, I'm not talking about it in the uh, Murray Rothbard sense. I kind of use it as a colloquial term sure. to mean some sort of future progress or, you mm -hmm. know, thing that exists. Uh, I don't think it's going to look like Ancaps describe it now, mm. um, but it, it is sort of like my Oz or my my vision for the future. Right. And well, probably at some point we'll just have to rename it something else, but people are familiar with that term. So I've co-opted it for my own mm -hmm. purposes. Well, but here's, but, um, but what did you just, but what did you just delineate? Right. In a sense, it's, it's what Plato talked about in the Republic. Oh, so long ago is, mm -hmm. is utopia utopos or utopos. Is it the place that can, that cannot be, or is it the perfect place? Yeah. I, I, that, that, I that, actually think, yeah. Every time I think about somebody like uh, like a Plato or, you know, an Aristotle or, or someone like I, I wonder what they would think if they were living through the last 18 months, you know, and, and it, it's a great thought experiment. Obviously, we don't know. Uh, we can kind of maybe project some of their ideas on, OK, well, they were thinking this during this particular instance. Maybe they would feel the same way today. And they're obviously only dealing with their own circumstances and everything they knew up to that point. So I, I, I find it. Um, a little cringe when people like pick or choose a philosopher over another, because everybody is trying their best at the time that they're thinking or philosophizing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to learn from all of these people, but you know, this, the same way people can, can take the Bible and pretend it was written directly to them in 2021 when it fucking wasn't, 
you know, mm-hmm. people do that with philosophy too. And they try to project these thinkers onto, onto so we, we don't know what somebody like if Plato had written the Republic sitting through COVID locked in his home with his business taken away and not being able to feed his family, uh, the Republic might've looked a lot different. So I, I just think it's important to look at that in context. And, you know, if we're going to write our own version of the Republic today, it doesn't necessarily invalidate his. It just means we're looking at it through our own context at this moment. Well, I've always liked to say um, a good philosopher does two things. They compare themselves to Socrates and then they mischaracterize their opponent's arguments. And that's probably <laughs> why I'm not a good philosopher um, is, is, is because I put it. I was looking, I'm trying to find something that I wrote recently, but, it, but, it, but, you, but you, just, you, just, you just articulated it right there. I, that is how I view philosophy. It is the, um, and this is uh, from that book, Leisure is the Basis of Culture, Joseph Piper, but he also talked about philosophy as the counter melody to religion. So mm. personally in my, and I, I'm not, I'm not practicing, I wouldn't be called a practicing Catholic at the moment. I don't go to mass um, on, on any kind of a regular basis, but I've never set, I've never rejected God. If, if that, if that makes sense, the, the term atheist, and you know, there could be a, there could be a, difference here in just, um, you know, our coming where, when we came of age. Right. But uh, like the term atheist never had a cachet for me. Now my brother's an atheist, so it's not like it's and my younger brother to boot. So it's not like it's unique. Um, or, you know, it's not like there aren't people turning into atheists or saying it, but, and I have one of my best friends is an atheist and him and I have very interesting conversations about this, um, because I am also a hyper-rationalist person. So that makes, that confuses people a lot of times because, you know, religious person means doy, dumb, you know, they don't, they don't know what they're talking about because they believe in fairy tales, but I've never rejected the idea of God. And what I find interesting about where I am now, given the times we live in is how I am returning to the Bible, returning to these ancient stories. And Jordan Peterson did a lot for this. Um, he basically unlocked the door that nobody knew you could open or nobody even knew existed. Wait, we can actually take these deep stories and use them in a in a way that doesn't mean that we are necessarily religious adherents. Well, that's, that's interesting. How do we actually, what are the ramifications of that? Because we were, we are in a more materialist age, as you were saying. And then what, what a lot of people are contending right now for a broader context for the listeners is that we are moving from materialist time into a mystical time. And so there are consequences of that. Now to take the Jordan Peterson example, he has, he has probably done more to convey the mythos and, and maybe praxis of Christianity to the masses than anybody else in popular culture. Um, I tend to err on the Jonathan Joe side of, of it, but um, there's something very interesting about Jordan Peterson. And, and he's been incredibly honest and very vulnerable uh, about his personal life and his struggle uh, kind of for everybody to see in real time. I have mm-hmm. a, a, the utmost respect for that and the utmost respect for him as a human being. Um, but it, it's very interesting. And it, it's so interesting. It also almost seems scripted that once he decided to actively, and he, he talks about this, actively deny accepting the spirit into him, how his life has turned 180 degrees mm. for everyone to see in real time. Yeah. And yes, that is, colloquial, right? There, there's no way to ha- have a the scientific proof of this happening, but it's, it's incredibly interesting. When, when I watch his um, conversations with Jonathan Pajot, I see a, a jolly, jovial, 
you know, happy, content human being on one side, and I see a frail, withering away of a human being on the other, and they're both so intelligent. And I think to myself, what if Jordan Peterson had said yes instead of no when that dream of the Holy Spirit descended upon him? What if he had made a different choice? Because his wife did. And again, I'm not trying to do story time here on your show, but it, it does seem to me that when she made that decision, her life changed for the better. And when he made his decision, his life changed for the worse. And now he's um, hosting libertarian debates on his show. And it's kind of embarrassing. So I, you know, I don't know, like, again, I'm projecting yeah. and I'm making conversation, but it's, it's very interesting to see how it plays out. This guy who understands Christianity maybe better than most Christians, but just can't accept it in his life and it's killing him. Well, but isn't there always a little bit of madness and genius? I, I think there's, um, I think if there's, I, I don't know, maybe this is just, maybe this is just me post hoc justifying my existence here, Adam, but if, <laughs> if, we can um, both do that. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, there's, there's a little bit, I think there's a little bit of a madness in the genius. There's always a little bit of hurt in the creative and, you know, certainly the best, uh, you know, I've written poetry songs, things like that in my past, the best ones always come from a place of hurt. You know, the ones I, I was, in fact, when I was trying not to be so dark and dour and I was trying to write love songs as a you know young man um, who didn't and still doesn't understand, doesn't quite understand love. But, um, uh, you know, it was like, oh, well, stop writing. You're writing the same song over and over again. You know, it's all about the girl you wish you had. Um, whereas when I think when I think back on the songs that I've written, you know, some of them are fun to sing, maybe. But there was a there was a couple that had intrinsic meaning to myself um you know writing about things like you know my parents divorce for example um and kind of like putting that into a song that had this catharsis element to it that it's still you know it's still something i think about to this day um and and it's uh anyway but so i think there's there there may be something to that you know jonathan jonathan pego is not he's not jordan peterson but like you said he lives a pretty happy seems to be living a happy life um, yeah, I mean, for, for all I know, that's all a front too. And who knows, maybe he's a sociopath behind the scenes, but it's, <laughs> right. well, but, but it's an interesting value. thing, right? Cause you're saying like, hang on, you know, this isn't, this isn't empirical proof. This isn't a double blind study. This isn't peer reviewed, but it's, but this is how, how else are we to understand the world? Right. There's, and this well, is something I, I that wonder, the podcasting medium gives us. I, I wonder if, and I've thrown this out to a few people, maybe I'll get your, your thoughts on it if you don't mind me kind of co-opting the conversation no, for a please second, do. but it, it's the, the idea that w- what if we just, what, what if people just pretended that God was real? If they just pretended that Christ, I mean, obviously Christianity defines our entire existence, whether we're atheist or theist, mm-hmm. because this is the culture that we live in. We can't escape it. But what if we just, you know, took the Bible and just pretended it was real and lived our lives based on that foundation? Do, do you think that that would end people would end up in a better place or a worse place or the same place rather than deny it. Like rather than actually fundamentally believe it, just kind of use it in a utilitarian way. Do do you think that has any kind of significance or do you think that could work? Do you think that's silly? I don't know. I think most of atheism is a rejection of religion, not God. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's far more. And most atheists are far more concerned with reacting against the religion that they were raised in than they are with contending with the idea of God and the divine. Yeah. My friend that I was speaking of earlier is, is, is an example to the contrary. 
which is why it's interesting to talk to him about these ideas. And we had, you know, the same kind of education growing up. So it's so, you know, we have that we have that shared um, we have that shared story. Um, so I think that I don't I don't know is the real answer, but I think there is an element to that. You know, I, I think uh, that Jordan Peterson does say, you know, act as if God exists or he or that's what he does, uh, which some people would take as a cop out, I, I think is irrelevant. Isn't isn't that the purpose of religion, though, is to instill those values kind of circling back to what we were talking about with the human nature. What religion says is, yeah, you're a sinner. So here's what you're going to do to make sure you don't go to hell. Very simple. No, there's no need for lobsters. There's no need for understanding serotonin systems or the multifaceted way in which our brain processes information. I think that's the realm of philosophy is actually trying to figure out all the little tendrils that exist. But what does religion do? Religion gives you this prepackaged answer. So almost by definition, if as long as somebody's acting as if it's true and believes that what they're doing is going to help them, it does the case. Yeah. Now, here's the problem. And this is this is the danger to what this is the danger to the conversation we have right now is that we are having a, not we necessarily in this context, but I perceive people having. Let me say it this way. There's a lot of power in the word of God. There's a lot of power in the word of God. And the other thought that popped into my head when you asked me the question before was, well, I think the people who I think the, the you know, thinking about the Catholic Church. The abusers in the Catholic Church, do they act as if God exists or do they use God to or do they use religion to shield themselves from, you know, persecution or do they seek the power for the power's sake and not for what it gives to people? Yeah. I think that's a, that's a tough question, because usually when you say, why aren't you part of religion? It's like, well, look at the Catholic Church. They have you know, they abuse they abuse children, even though public school teachers abuse children at the same exact, if not higher rates. So it's not a quite so it's not really a question of the church per se. It's a question of power, as most things can be broken into. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly Nietzsche understood this as well. So I don't know. I think that's how I'd have to answer the question right now. But I'd have to I'd have to maybe think about it a little bit more. It, it's a great point that you brought up that the the most well maybe not most but a lot of atheists are they're just simply reacting to life experience. And I would put myself in that camp too. When when I would have considered myself an atheist, it was because. I had a really shitty catechism. I didn't like the Roman Catholic upbringing that I had. I went to Catholic school. You know, I did the altar boy thing. I thought it was silly. Um, I didn't like structure. I wanted to rebel. I wanted to be kid. Uh, it just didn't appeal to me. It wasn't sold to me in, in a way that was comprehensible. Um, and so therefore I just called myself an atheist uh, to, to the point where calling myself an atheist in retrospect doesn't even mean anything. It didn't mean shit. It just meant that I didn't like the way I was brought up. Hmm. That very well might be the way a lot of people go through it. And, and when I went back, or I have started going back and, and, and reading the Bible exegetically, I, I'm finding so much more in there that's applicable to my daily life. And to me, it, you know, there, there's, there's clearly archaeological and historical records that point to a lot of truth in the Bible, at least, you know, the exile to post exile. Um, I'm a little iffy on how I think those stories are real prior to that, mm. but reading through it and understanding that they are stories that were told to people for a reason at that time to elicit a response that provided society with a better outcome than the antithesis 
is something that I've started to internalize and realize that if you just follow the point of the story, because most of the Hebrew Bible is not about telling a story. It's about uh, explaining a way of living through storytelling Mm -hmm. and the story itself to them didn't matter so much. It's why we read the Bible. We're like, yeah, it's kind of a dumb story. Like it's over in like three verses, like kind of a Mm. shitty story. And, but to them, it wasn't the story. It was the point of saying the thing that to live the life that way. It seems to me that when people follow those lessons, they tend to live a certain type of life that seems to me to be more congruent with how I would want to see my own life or those of my loved ones lived. So that there's something for me that's very utilitarian about that, but it also feels really good too. Well, and I would just personally say I've seen the positives and the negatives of that, you know, religious life, because I've also seen the way in which you can be ostracized very easily through no fault of your own. And where all that mercy, all that talk of mercy and love goes out the window, because, again, we're just petty apes struggling for our place in the hierarchy. I also like to say that um, this is this is kind of a fun one to, to go against, you know, and like an atheist. But I think. I think it's demonstrably true that there is more truth within the Bible than in 80 to 90% of social science. Mm. It, Pareto, Pareto, if, as long as, if Pareto means anything, then that, then that is true by definition. It's like, so 80% of what 80% of social science can be thrown away, just kind of offhand. It's a question of what 80% are you throwing away that matters, but there's more truth in the Bible in that, in that respect, because it is because of its applicability. And that's something that I try to do in my work. Um, at binaway.com. But let's pivot to this article and we can kind of end there because we're at an hour 30 right now, um, okay. which we haven't been recording for that entire time. But um, so you got you got a little write up that you said you were excited about. You want to serve this up? I have the article pulled in front of me. I mean, excited is a strange word. So I was um, I, I was trying to link to an episode on my show to text to a friend of mine. So I, I was uh, um. I was at a store and waiting line and I went on my cell phone and I just went to the website. You're talking over me.com. And I was going to copy and paste the link into somebody's um, into a chat. And I, I must've typed it wrong. Cause a bunch of search results came up for me personally <laughs> and not my, you know, Adam Patrick is some of my name, but not my entirely real name. And um, it, it came up Keith Preston who has, I don't have the article right in front of me, um, but he's been on Free Man Beyond the Wall. I'm familiar with him. And he was essentially critiquing uh, my last episode with Pete Quinones on Pete's podcast, which is not out yet, which if you're a Patreon supporter, you could listen to right now. Um, by the time, but I, if say, you're by not the time I release this up, yeah, by the time I release this episode, it'll be released. Right. So it'll be up there for public consumption. We recorded it right after Pete recorded with Matt. It was like a follow-up episode. So Keith linked to that, uh, brought it to his website, made it public, and then commented on it, uh, not so much to me, but kind of in, in, a, in a way talking about how he thinks this right-leaning, his words, um, concept of post-libertarianism is, I guess, silly, right? Is that a good way to put, s- summarize the yeah, way he was so, talking about so it? What you, he you says, can read it, you have it right in front of you. Yeah, I got it right in front of me. So he starts, so we'll just kind of do the first, well, it's a very, it's a very short piece. So let's just kind of read through it and let me know if you want me to stop. Aside for some, aside from some theoretical differences in the realms of political theory and economic theory, the main problem I have with U.S. libertarians is the way in which they have not been able to stand apart from mainstream U.S. politics. It seems that virtually all libertarians feel compelled to take one or another, quote, culture war side. 
making themselves into just another faction of either the red or blue tribe. My criticisms of the left, in parentheses, including left libertarians and left anarchists, are well known. But I've seen plenty of libertarians going in the direction of the standard right libertarian, quote, wokeness sucks, so we need to become conservative slash Catholic traditionalists slash NRXers, neo-reactionary direction. This Matt Erickson guy they're discussing seems to also have the fetish for Eastern Orthodox religion that is common amongst many in. Okay, so fetish right. Fetish right away is always a key. That, that's a word to me and no, no disrespect intended. But if I read the word fetish in, in that context, I tend, to, I tend to start dismissing things. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just as a little insight into how I read. But um, let's see. Da-da-da-da-da. This fetishism of the eastern europe of eastern orthodox i can't say i'm impressed with it i've seen in plenty sorry i lost my place um amongst many of the u.s alt-right slash light slash nrx slash traditionalist slash whatever milieu i've seen plenty of libertarians go in this kind of direction over the past decade but i can't say i'm much impressed with it to me it's just a rightist inversion of the left libertarian woke is libertarian perspective both are just ultimately both are ultimately just another tribe or religious sect, and is beside the point when it comes to what I consider to be the most important aspects of anarchism or libertarianism, i.e. the critique of power. Serious anarchism criticizes systems of power regardless of who holds it, irrespective of how traditional, woke, socialist, capitalist, religious, secular, whatever else they may be. I will work with anyone who criticizes this or that system of power. And then he goes on to say that he wrote in a Paleocon journal in a Green Party article. Um, and, you know, attacking, attacking things from both a left and right wing perspective. So that's, you know, and that's basically the piece. Yeah. Well, one thing jumps out at me there and, um, I I responded to it on that website. I just, I filled in the comment section Mm -hmm. with my name and my email and said, Hey, you happen to mention me in this, in this article. Um, would you like to come on and have a conversation? And I had listened to him on Pete's show. So I'm familiar with who he is, but one thing really jumped out at me there. And it was the the, the, the anarchists uh, challenge power thing. Mm. And to me, that's uh, simply lacks praxis. There's nothing there. You're challenging power for what? For the sake of challenging it? I don't know what that means. And it seems to me that exactly the reason why some of us are starting this conversation is because we want to develop a praxis in order to figure out why some power works and some power doesn't, or some is acceptable and some is unacceptable. But the idea that I'm just going to go out there and be like, I hate the color yellow and everywhere I see it, I'm going to, going to paint it red or purple or blue. Uh, to me, that's just um, on its face, pretty, pretty ridiculous. So I, I don't know what he, what he's getting at. And I'll, I'll be happy to have a conversation with him. That's not, uh, <clears throat> you know, angry, but, <laughs> right. but I think that he kind of makes my point for me in the article. Right. Well, because he's he what what you're pointing out is if you're going to just always oppose power, then you're never going to have it. You're going to be you're going to be the exception. Right. Right. Like and the exception is great, but it'll never become the rule. So you're kind of you're 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 intentionally putting yourself in a certain place. Now, I just wrote a piece. Sorry, real quick. I just wrote a piece called the um the uh, an apology for irreverence and i used apology and I'll, I'll 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 the twist is i use apology in the old sense of the word which is to say a defense so i'm defending irreverence and so i'm talking about i'm trying to actively work through this thing of well if you revere something do you know if it's worth revering so that's where irreverence actually comes in and i'm operating under this presumption that there's there's light and there's always light and dark there's always a positive and a, and a negative to everything anything that we can conceive of because we are humans and therefore we are limited and fallible 
And so we can't create something perfect by definition, because if we were perfect, we would have already had everything figured out. The, um, there's, but there's an interesting thing here. Um, and I, I honest, I mean, I don't know this gentleman and he seems very interesting and obviously cares a great deal about the same things that we care about, mm-hmm. but this is, but this is kind of what you've been hinting at. There's a generational component to this. There's a huge generational component to this in that we can, in the way that you conceptualize and talk about Liberty, right? This was this, and here's as for evidence of this, we might look to the 2020 libertarian campaign for president, libertarian party campaign for president, because here we have this political party that's looking, looking to, that says it's a party of principle that, that says it speaks for an ideology. And we can look at two people, Jacob Hornberger and Joe Jorgensen. Joe Jorgensen ended up winning the election. Jacob Hornberger was the favorite of the LPMC, which I do organize with the LPMC in Illinois as an as a testament to full disclosure. Um, but one thing that I found lacking in both of those people was how their message did not line up to the times. We are sitting having the same questions of, well, we just have to, basically we have to go against Reagan's moral majority and that's going to help us and be just better small government people as a consequence. This isn't an insult to the, this isn't an insult to the people involved. There is a natural flow to humanity, that means the older generation isn't going to understand the new generation. And for God's sake, again, look at the internet, look at the way in which we're, look at the way in which we're communicating right now, how this conversation is going to be disseminated. The fact that this conversation even exists, right? Like, you know, I don't know where you are. I don't even know where you operate out of the United States. (laughs) And yet we're still having this very deep, very important conversation about the nature of existence. And that was one thing that I saw in, again, both Joe Jorgensen and Jacob Hornberger, is the is the degree to which it just seemed out of touch with where things were going. And one thing that in that we're kind of labeling these different people, these different nodes in the network that I am <clears throat> incidentally trying to insert myself into um, is is that we are trying to figure out how these ideas can stay relevant and be pushed forward. And there's nothing wrong with that. The same thing was the same re- the same way in which there was nothing wrong with Locke trying to start with the tabula rasa. But Mises correcting that and saying, well, no, we have this natural logical structure, which is why the Marxist polylogism doesn't make any sense, right? Because the Marxist definition is that we are, fun- we are actually different creatures, in a sense. The ruler and the ruled are different creatures. So that's one thing, that's one thing that, 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 that comes apparent. And, you know, interestingly enough, or not interestingly enough, but who I would credit with this is actually Nick Gillespie, who, act, who kind mm-hmm. of first, who, would, who he, he kept talking about this in the 2020 election cycle as well of this generational component to things. And one thought I've had as a consequence of this is, have there ever been four or five generations working simultaneously at once? And by working, I mean, being like of adults of age. I, I don't think so. Right. Cause we basically have, I mean, maybe not greatest generation is working, but today we have actively four generations in the workplace as it is, which is to say fully formed adults or almost fully formed adults. And that's not going to stop because of the long, because of the advances we've made in longevity. So what do you think about that from a generational angle of sometimes we're just kind of, it's kind of the difference between, it's kind of the difference between, uh, you know, uh, you know, picking up a guitar and playing rock and roll, right? It's, um, it's Marty McFly and, and back to the future is like, you don't get it, but your kids are going to love it. Yeah. I, I think they're, well, when you're talking about the, the libertarian party with uh, Hornberger, Jorgensen, yeah, I think that's spot on. 
when it comes to somebody like Keith Preston, and, and again, I, I haven't had a, a full chance to talk to him or really understand where he's coming from. So I'm, I'm making assumptions here. I'm not trying to be a dick. Yeah, I um, just looked at the picture. He's got great hair. Um, I'm <laughs> envious because I used to have really long hair. And and apparently he has, he has quite the background of being an activist. And, and, and listen, I, I'm not trying to shit on anybody. I just came across this randomly standing line at a store. So I'm only mm -hmm. reacting the best I can. But it reminds me of um, Ernst Jünger's Oymishville, um, Oymishville, okay. I think is the way you say it. And in it, he, it, in this directly influenced Curtis Yarvin's clear pill theory and gray mirror for the nihilist prince. But in Oymishville, he's writing post-World War II Germany and he develops the idea of the anarch. And the anarch is to the anarchist what the monarch is to the monarchist. And so it, to kind of envision that in our time, the anarch would be a Thoreau or a Ted Kaczynski, right? Mm. Somebody who wanders off into the woods and that's the end of it. And to me, it seems when I'm reading um, Keith's response there, I see the eternal activist who, who's really the existence of their ideology only depends on the existence of the state. And it, it, is, it is fed in a circular fashion by the fact that the, the behemoth, the, the enemy is ever present, ever existent. And I, again, it's not that I just don't see any praxis there. I feel like it's a self-enforcing, self-reinforcing mechanism of the only way to continue to be your anarchist revolutionary um, activist self is for there to be a state. And if you were ever to see the end of the state, you'd be like the dog who caught the car, right? Well, what would you do? Like Joker says in The Dark mm -hmm. Knight, yeah. I, I wouldn't even know what to do if I caught it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It, it, I'm just a dog chasing a car. So th th there's something that jumps out at me there that if, if what you really wanted was to break away from the state and, and, and have an end to all of this, you would just go the agoristic route or the anarch route or the clear pill route. And you would just leave, just go do you man. Mm. But in order to be an activist, you require something to activist against. Yeah. And that to me seems like a complete waste of time. I, I just, I don't know what energy spent on that is useful. Yeah. I've but I, never... could, I, I totally could be wrong. I'm just throwing it out there. Well, I, so I, you know, we can, we can also, we can mollify this by saying that um, there is, you know, if, if we're all but actors on a stage, then we need, we need, there needs to be multiple voices doing different, there needs to be people doing different things. Um, activism has, I'll, I'll be honest, activism has never been my strong suit. It's or not even my strong suit. It's never been of interest to me. Yeah. Um, the, the, I've, I'm, I'm more interested in this engaging of ideas, trying to, come up with something trying to you know test my wit in metal against somebody else has always been that that's always been a far more interesting to me than like doing a demonstration do i think that you know uh, do do i think that like holding big demonstrations is is super is super useful i'm not sure but there obvious obviously a lot of people gain value to it but so there's nothing to be there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, there are people who will be activists and they will do good things as a consequence. It's just it's not something that I interact with well, because kind of like what you were leaning at is your entire. Therefore, if that becomes who you are, then that's all you can do. Again, you are you are putting yourself as the perpetual exception. And if you are doing that, then you can never become the rule, which means you can never get what you ostensibly want. Nietzsche talked about this, right? He talked about the exception was great, kind of provided it never became the rule. 
which is which was kind of in a meditation on like this idea of what happens when you actually what happens when you actually get power what does happen when you actually what does happen when you actually get the keys what does happen when you have that button in front of you that says i want to get rid of the state what actually does happen there what do you do in that context as a complete as a seemingly non sequitur mark twain has answered this question in a in a short story which was um where he it's uh the story of a guy who who leaves his title in England and comes to America and kind of, and, it, and it's a very interesting meditation on that. But one thing that I, one thing that struck with me was a conversation between a couple of characters and they were saying how it's just awful. It's just awful that there are still princes in the world and everybody, every prince should give up all of his possessions and never be a prince again. And the response to that was, come on, really? Are you so sure about that? Are you sure that if you were given the opportunity to go and be a nobleman in England and have and have a house full of servants at a time where people didn't have indoor plumbing, that you wouldn't do that? Do you really think that that sort of power is so beyond you? Or would you think that you'd be different? Would you think that you would do it and you would actually use the power for good? Um, and, and, there, and, and that's scary. I mean, power has, power has scared me. The idea, the idea of taking power uh, because of the consequences of it. And so I can understand why somebody would choose not to, um, not, not to do that. Yeah. Yes. And the, the power dynamics is for sure a large part of the conversation that I'm starting to have with people is, is about understanding what would you do if you had it or uh, how can you get it? And then what, what will you do with it when you have the opportunity to wield it? What, what bugs me about a lot of libertarians and many anarchists is um, they would have no idea what to do if they actually achieved their goals because they never thought about it. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it almost seems like completely unreasonable. It's, it's almost the same to me as somebody who's, you know, um, a, a crit theorist, uh, if they were to solve the problem of racism, well, they no longer have a reason to be a crit theorist. They no longer have a meaning or a purpose in their life to go about this activism. If the anarchist achieves anarchism, well, then what do you do? Oh my God, we got it. We got anarchism. Now what? Mm -hmm. Well, someone's probably just going to put a spear through your temple and that's going to be the end of you. So yeah. maybe we should talk more about this praxis and, and have this conversation and spend less time virtue signaling to in-groups about shit that we don't fully understand. Um, I think uh, I mean, I, I am incredibly humbled that, to have this conversation with you. You're incredibly well-read uh, and well-spoken, and I, I'm only attempting to hold my own here. And, and hopefully I've done that. Uh, I, I think, I think so. that the for me, the praxis is the most important thing. And the mm -hmm. end goal is the most important thing. And then that can change. It can vary. I'm open to it. Um, I just think chasing the car for the sake of chasing it, uh, is, it is, is not good policy. And it isn't praxis at all. Mm -hmm. You know, when you were talking about what would the anarchists do if it, if you realized anarchy, what popped into my head were the Hebrews. Uh, here's also what the Bible does too: is like we know these stories, so we don't have to we don't have to explain them, right? But is it was was the Hebrews wandering through the desert after Egypt? And I was thinking about, about huh? In Judges, is that Judges? Maybe I'm yeah, Catholic. I, I don't read the Bible. Um, <laughs> Well played. No, Exodus. Exodus, yeah. No, not Judges, because Judges okay. is when Judges is when they've settled in Judea. Um, so no, Exodus is what I'm talking about here. And where they finally find the promised land. Uh, and who doesn't get to enter? Moses. 
Mm. Right. Like Moses knew he had to lead his people out. He knew he had to bring them through the desert and to prepare them into something. But he never got to see the promised land. And in my mind, I was like, hmm, so maybe that's the answer is the anarchist does that. But then came the but then came the follow up thought to that, which was, yeah, but Moses did give us the Ten Commandments. He gave us the law on which everything was founded upon. And so we're right back to where you were saying. And I think that's a great, I think that's a great place to end it. So why don't you tell people where they can find you, Adam, and we can uh, get ready to continue this conversation at another time. Yes, sir. So the name of the podcast is you're talking over me and I spelled it goofy on purpose. So it's Y E R talking with no G and then uh, over me normally. So you're talking over me at, um, dot uh, com. You're talking over me.com. And then you can find me on any social media platform at I am Adam Patrick, or you're talking over me at protonmail.com. If you want to, P- people have sent me DMS and emails and all kinds of stuff. I love the feedback. I love when people disagree with me, if it's polite, uh, keep pushing, keep learning, keep growing. Um, and then, um, and, and your show, dude, honestly, and I, I don't have to drop a plug for you on your own show but I only recently started listening and it's this great combination of like, uh, Stevens philosophize this and, and, uh, um, part of the problem that pulls in current events and philosophy in such a well-spoken way. I'm super digging it, dude. And, and I, uh, I'm That's hooked. Kind of what I'm going so for. Please, please keep doing what you're doing. Also. Thank you. And if, Hey, if you want to, if you're listening to this and you haven't already, make sure you go to beenawake.com, subscribe with your email. Uh, you know, there's larger conversations here about what are tech platforms, what do they actually represent? Well, I don't I, 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 I analogize it to saying we're a paratrooper behind enemy lines. So the way you actually support the fight is by giving us your email addresses as content creators. That's what we're trying to do. So that's what I ask if you guys can do that. And, if, and uh, you know, until next time, if we remember that if we fear what we do not understand, the answer must be to try and understand everything. like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is Albi Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.